Amen. Well, last night I started out of Ephesians chapter 2 sharing about the, the balance between grace and faith. And last night we just basically focused on uh, that these are two separate things that need to be combined to be able to see the power of God released in your life. And the body of Christ as a whole is divided between those who emphasize the grace of God alone at the exclusion of the truth of faith or those who emphasize faith alone at the exclusion of grace. And both of those are wrong if you take them independent of each other. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace are you saved through faith. It's the combination of grace and faith together that releases the power of God. Grace or faith taken by themselves at the exclusion of the other one is actually uh, disastrous. It'll destroy you. And so last night what I did was talk about people who have emphasized that everything is just up to God, the grace of God, to the exclusion of the fact that we have a part to play in what God does. And we, I talked specifically last night about the extreme sovereignty of God teaching where people blame God for every single thing that happens to us. And I believe, in my opinion, that that is the worst doctrine in the body of Christ today because it just renders people passive. If God is controlling everything, what's the point in us seeking God, praying, studying the Word, doing anything? Because after all, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. It's just up to God. And that's where a large segment of the body of Christ is. And that keeps us from taking our authority. A scripture I used last night is James 4, 7, where it says, Submit yourselves therefore unto God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You have to recognize some things are from God, some things are from the devil. Satan is not God's messenger boy. Satan is not on a leash and God only lets him go so far. You are the one that allows Satan to come in. The Bible says it in 1 Peter chapter 5, I believe verse 7, that your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, goes about seeking whom he may devour. He cannot devour everybody. He can't do things to us without our consent and cooperation. And one of the things that just turns the devil loose in your life is this attitude that, well, it couldn't have happened if it wasn't God's will. So therefore, you can't really fight. Again, I refer to James 4, 7, resist the devil. The word resist means to actively fight against. You cannot actively fight against something if you think God has ordained it or permitted it. God is not the one that permits these things. So I think that that is an abuse. That's an extreme. And there are so many more scriptures that I wanted to use last night. I never got around to them. But real quickly, let me just... If you would go back and study, like when the Israelites came out of the land of Egypt, there are many, many, many instances where the Lord made it clear that He wanted them to enter directly into the promised land and receive the promises that He had for them. But because of their disobedience and their unbelief, they spent 40 years in the wilderness that was not God's will. That wasn't God's plan for them. That was their disobedience that was being punished. God didn't will that. And it says over in Psalms chapter 78 verse 41 that in their heart they turned back unto Egypt and tempted God and they limited the Holy One of Israel. Again, there's many people that just can't even conceive this. There's nothing that we can do to limit God. 
God is not forcing His will upon us individually or collectively as a nation and as a group of people. You have to cooperate with God to see God's will come to pass in your life. A scripture goes right along with this, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 15 through 18. I won't quote the whole thing, but it talks about how that they would have absolute victory. Nobody would stand before them. The Lord would deliver all of their enemies into their hands, promise them perfect victory. And then in verse 18, it says, But if you say in your heart, these nations are more than I, then how can I, talking about God, was saying, how can I dispossess them? He had just promised them absolute victory. Nobody will stand before you. You'll win every battle. Everything's going to work. But if you say this, if you get into unbelief, how can I dispossess them? God cannot bring deliverance in your life if you yield through unbelief and fear and doubt that stops the power of God from operating. Well, now that's an important, important truth. And those who ex- emphasize the extreme sovereignty of God, that God controls everything, what I've just said to them is terrible. They hate me for preaching this. I've been branded a cult and a, all kinds of things because I preach that God's will doesn't just automatically come to pass. You have to choose God's will. I think that that is obvious if you are a student of the Word. Look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and let me start with this verse. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And in verse 9, the Apostle Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles, that am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. That's a strong statement by a man who wrote half of the New Testament, saw people raised from the dead. He was a powerful man of God, and yet he knew that what he was wasn't because of who he was in the natural. It was because of of the grace and the mercy of God. So he says, I'm the least. I'm not even fit to be called an apostle because of the things that I did. But in verse 10, he says... But uh, by the grace of God, I am what I am. He gave all of the credit to God and he says, it's the grace, it's the unmerited favor and ability of God that was given to me that made me who I am. So he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. You know, there's a number of times. Paul said over in uh, Galatians chapter 2, He says that if you are trying to be justified by the works of the law, then Christ profits you nothing. Your faith is vain and you make void the grace of God. Now see again, grace is what God does for us independent of us. It has nothing to do with your performance. By grace, God has already provided forgiveness of sins, healing, deliverance, joy, peace. Everything that God is and has has already been accomplished by grace. But grace alone does not transform you unless there is the response of faith on our part. And this is what the Apostle Paul is saying. He says, this grace that was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Right here in one verse is put together grace and faith. God by grace extended a call to Paul. He was on his way to murder Christians in Damascus. 
And yet God appeared to him in a blinding flash of light and gave him an opportunity to respond. That was grace. Paul didn't deserve that. And when the Lord spoke to him, he says, Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. You know what that's talking about? The Lord had already been convicting him. The Lord had been pricking his heart. There's a number of places in Scripture where it says that these people were pricked in their hearts. That's talking about the conviction of the Holy Spirit. God had been convicting the Apostle Paul ever since he saw uh, Stephen stoned to death and he's the one that everybody laid their coats down at his feet and he kept the garments of the people as he saw Stephen stoned to death. And as Stephen was dying, he knelt down and he said, Father, forgive them. Or lay not this sin to their charge, is what he said. And he saw the Lord. He saw the heavens open up and he saw the Lord. The, Saul saw all of that. And God had been pricking his heart and God appeared to him and he says, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. And God extended grace towards the man who was killing his own people. Man, that's the grace of God. But... You know what? If Paul hadn't have responded and labored more abundantly than they all, then we might have read the report about how that Saul got converted, but he wouldn't have ever become Paul. He wouldn't have been the apostle that wrote half of the New Testament and did all of these great miracles. It takes a response on our part for God's grace and the things that He's provided freely for us to be able to work. You know, we're in a battle. It just amazes me, the people that don't understand this. They're looking for just physical, natural reasons why everything happened. But I tell you, we are in a spiritual battle. And Satan is doing everything he can to stop you. You look at things and just see in the natural realm and wonder about why this. And that's the reason that I think that people get so in despair when they see the political process go differently than what they want is because that's where their hope is. That's where their faith is. It's not in a Savior. It's not in God. They are looking to physical, natural things as their salvation. But I tell you, there is a spiritual battle going on. And when you cooperate with God and seek God with your whole heart, good things happen. When you don't seek God and when you are over here operating in the carnal realm, bad things happen because Satan is going about seeking whom he may devour and it takes your consent and cooperation for Satan to do anything in your life. Not many people believe that, but that's true, regardless whether you believe it or not. It's what the scripture says. We aren't fighting flesh and blood. It's not a physical battle. It's a spiritual battle. There are spiritual things going on. And so you have to cooperate. You have to resist. You have to fight the unbelief and the discouragement and the negativism of this world to be able to see what God wants to do in your life come to pass. God has a perfect plan for every one of you. God hasn't made a single one of you for defeat or failure. He has a perfect plan for every one of you. But... Only some people will see God's perfect plan come to pass in their life. Not because God just created some of you to be duds. <laughs> Not because God wants some of you to be failure. Not because there's only a few people that God really loves. No, the grace of God is the same towards every person, but not everybody labors abundantly to see what God's purpose and plan for their life is. See, this is what I was referring to earlier when I said that some people have had God speak a word to them and yet here they are a year, two years, three years later still not doing what God told them. I just can't compute that. I don't even want to compute that. I don't even want to get to where I can figure out how people live that way. Boy, if God tells me to do something, I will do it. If it hair lips every devil in hell, amen, I am going to do it. And if it... 
I had a guy come to me one time. Matter of fact, this guy is now an employee of ours. He was a Bible college graduate, and we offered him a job running our night school. And at the time, night school was just a part-time job, and he was making a lot of money. He has, I think, five or six kids. He has a large family. And it was going to be a big cut and pay for him if he came to work. And he was out at my house doing some things, and he says, you know, I really feel that this is what God wants me to do, but I've got a family, and this is like half of the salary that I had, and what do I do? And, and he was asking me all these questions, and I just told him, I said, you lost me when you said this is what you feel God wants you to do. I said, if you feel that God wants you to do it, then just do it. And he says, well, what about it? I said, I don't care about anything else. I said, if you have to get rid, if you have to move into an apartment, if you have to sell your house, if you have to downsize, if you have to sell your cars, whatever you got to do, you just do what God tells you to do. But see, there, there's people that hear the voice of God and then they're going to debate it. But, but God, what about this? Who cares about anything else? This is not a dress rehearsal. We aren't just practicing. This is the real deal. And if God speaks to you and tells you something, you ought to drop everything else. And boy, whatever God says, that's it. Because God has a plan for your life that is superior to anything any of you could ever plan for your life. And you need to follow God. What a privilege it is to hear the voice of God. What an honor it is to have God speak to you. And if God speaks to you, then forget everything else. Go for it. Man, we had a woman one time that came and she says, I know that God has called me to come to Colorado Springs and go to college, but I've got two dogs. What do I do? And the director of our Bible college, he says, last time I checked, they allowed dogs in Colorado. Bring them with you. You know what I said? I said, kill them. I know that's not real popular, but you know, this is how I feel about it. I'm a dog lover. I've had dogs myself, but I'm saying that, man, if a dog got in the way of me doing what God told me to do, I'd turn that dog loose, let it go out into the streets. I'd do anything. Why in the world would you let that? Well, I got two dogs. Keep you from obeying God. Boy, you talk about misplaced priorities. How did I get off on all that? <laughs> God has a will for you. He extends grace. But then you know what? There's some effort on your part. You have to make some decisions. You need to do whatever it takes to follow God. And you've got to balance these two. God, by grace, gives us giftings, talents, and abilities that are completely independent of anything we deserve. It's just grace. Sure, there are some things that it's God's part. God moves by grace. But then there is a response of faith on our part. And you've got to merge these two together in the proper mixture to be able to see the power of God operate in your life. If you get ahead of God and you just start deciding things and you start believing and trying to force God to do things, that's not going to work either. But you need to find out what God has done by grace, what He has provided, what God's will is, and then there needs to be an appropriate response on your part. That's what the Bible calls faith. Faith is our response. Now, I've got two definitions of faith, and this may seem really simple to you, but it took me 20 years to figure this out. So th these are profound definitions, I believe. Faith is just a positive response 
to what God has already done by grace. Now that's important. Faith is just a positive response to what God has already done by grace. Faith isn't something you do to get God to respond. And I believe that there's a major mistake in the body of Christ among people who preach faith that basically they they take scriptures like, you know, whosoever will say unto this mountain, be thou removed. I preach on that scripture a lot myself. But you can take that and just emphasize what you have to do in your authority. And some people come up with the opinion that, you know what, I am forcing God. I'm making the power of God move. And that's how we come up with these statements that faith moves God. I want you to know God's not the one that's stuck. God's not the one that needs to move. God moved before you ever had a problem. God moved through Jesus. Every person that will ever be healed was healed 2,000 years ago through Jesus. Every person that will ever be saved was already forgiven 2,000 years ago through Jesus. Every person that will ever be blessed, have joy, peace, or whatever, it's already been done 2,000 years ago through Jesus. You do not need God to move. You don't need God to come and heal you. You don't need God to come and touch you. God has already provided everything. You cannot make God do anything. And you know what? If that's the attitude that you have, that I'm going to make God heal me, I'm going to make the power of God flow, then boy, I tell you, that's arrogance gone to seed. That is going to cause frustration in your life for you to sit there and manipulate and twist God's arm and try and force God to do something. Boy, that is not consistent with the Word at all. Faith doesn't move God. God's moved by grace. Faith is just your positive response to what you believe God has already provided. Here's the second definition of faith. It's just the same thing said in a different way. Faith only appropriates what God has already provided by grace. If God has already provided it by grace, then your faith can't make it happen. Look at a passage over here in um, Mark chapter 11, verse 24. I just quoted from Mark eleven twenty-three. Mark eleven twenty-three says, Who, Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. And then verse 24 says, uh, therefore I say unto you that what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Now this has been taught primarily by people who emphasize faith, that we have power and authority and there are certain things that we have to do to see God's will come to pass, which I agree with that, but it can be taken to an extreme to the point that you literally can make God do anything. Whatsoever you want, you just say it. You believe that you receive and God has to do it. You will hear people put things into that kind of a terminology and that, man, we are going to grab hold of God and not let go until we make the power of God flow. In a sense, that's what's happening in the body of Christ right now with the prayer for revival, intercession for revival. 
They believe that God is up there with his arms folded like this, thinking, you bunch of hypocrites, and you, you know, he's not pouring out his power. He's not moving. People aren't being healed, saved, delivered, because he's upset with us. And so what we've got to do is get people together and pray and repent. And he won't listen to one or two or ten people. You've got to have a hundred thousand or a million people. We've got to put pressure on God and we've got to keep after him. Let's get on a 24-hour chain and let not let go until we just literally badger God into we are going to make him release his power and pour out revival. You probably wouldn't put it in those words, but that is the exact attitude that is prevalent in the body of Christ that we are making God move. We are going to make Him pour out His power. And I tell you, that's an affront to God. That's saying that you love people more than God does. You know, when I first got started in ministry, of course, I came through all of these things I'm preaching against. I've done them, so I'm not against people. I'm just saying that, you know, praise God, I've grown since then. But I remember having an all-night prayer meeting. And our all-night prayer meetings never lasted past 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. That's before we could pray in tongues. And you can pray for the whole world in 30 minutes if you don't know how to pray in tongues. And I remember praying and I mean screaming and yelling and hitting my fist against the wall. And I actually had this come out of my mouth. And I said, God, if you love the people in Arlington, Texas, half as much as I do, we'd have revival. And man, as soon as I said that, I knew something was seriously wrong with this picture. I was trying to get God to be as compassionate as I am. But you know what? That's exactly what most people do in prayer. Oh God, don't you care about America? Oh God, why are you pouring your spirit out over in Africa? How come we see miracles? Oh God, please move here. It's like, God, wouldn't you, don't you love these people as much as I do? Something's seriously wrong with that kind of praying. When you intercede for somebody, you know, God, my husband, my wife, my children, oh God, I just love them so much I can't live if they aren't saved. Do you think that you love them more than God does? Why do you approach God that way? It's because you don't believe that God has already done anything. He's waiting until somebody rises up and pray and He responds to your prayer. That's wrong. But that is the way that most people are thinking today. See, that is you taking too much responsibility over here, thinking that you can make God move. I had a woman come to me not long ago at one of our meetings, and she was saying, would you just please pray? I know God hears your prayers. Would you please pray that God would move and save my husband? And I said, what do you want me to pray? I said, how could I get God any more motivated to save your husband than what he already is? He already sent his son to die for him. I said, you're implying that God will, God isn't as motivated as I am. And I told this woman, I said, you're approaching this whole thing wrong. Instead of approaching God as an adversary and trying to make him do something, you ought to start praising God that he loves your husband more than you love him. And you ought to start praising God for the great things and just let you be a channel of this love flowing towards Him. But I guarantee you, we've got a lot of people erring in this area trying to force God to do something. And they take scriptures like this one that says that I will confess with my mouth and believe in my heart that I can rob a bank and get away with a million dollars and they will not catch me. I mean, that's what Mark chapter 11 verse 24 says, whatsoever... Isn't robbing a bank or whatsoever? Why can't we use Mark eleven twenty four to go rob a bank? 
Or here's another example. There was a group of people in Arlington, Texas where I grew up and this woman actually started a Bible school. And in this Bible school, she was a faith Bible school and she took this verse and what she desired was to be Kenneth Copeland's wife. And so she took this scripture. They had a wedding. She got a wedding gown. They had an actual wedding ceremony where she married Kenneth Copeland in the spirit. Of course, he wasn't physically there, but in the spirit, she married him and they stood on this scripture. What saying soever I desire, I desire Kenneth Copeland to be my husband. So she confessed it. They had a wedding ceremony and she married Kenneth Copeland in the spirit. And the way that she dealt with Gloria Copeland was to, she just cursed Gloria and commanded her to die and get out of the way. And so she went ahead and married Kenneth in the spirit and she was just waiting on Gloria to die so that she could go ahead and consummate the marriage with Kenneth Copeland. That was back in about 1960 something. And you know what? It hadn't happened yet and it's not going to happen. Now, see, most people would just sit there and read, oh, I don't believe it. Well, why not? The Bible says, whatsoever things you desire. Isn't wanting somebody else for a mate a whatsoever? Isn't that a desire? It says, whatsoever things you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. It's a promise. Why can't you claim another person? Why can't you curse their mate and command them to die? The answer to it is this deal about grace and faith. Faith doesn't make God do anything. Faith only appropriates what God has already provided by grace. If God hasn't already provided it, your faith can't make God do anything. The reason you can't go out and rob a bank using Mark eleven twenty four is because God didn't provide thievery for you in His atonement. Grace hasn't already provided it. The reason you can't curse another person and command them to die and then marry their mate is because God didn't provide murder and adultery in His atonement. Mark eleven twenty four doesn't make God do anything. What it's talking about is find out what He's already provided. And in, then if you will believe, then faith reaches out and appropriates what God has already provided by grace. I don't know if you got that or not, but that is awesome. If you could understand that, that would revolutionize most people's relationship with God. Because most people, there's been a couple of people I talked to today, right before this service, that are here trying to get God to do something. They're struggling to receive. I'm trying to believe God that God will do this. You know what? Once you understand what I'm talking about, it takes the struggle out of this. How can you doubt that God will do what He's already done? If it's grace, then it's already done. Grace is not something that is going to happen. It's something that's already been done. Jesus already died for the sins of the whole world. He's already died for the forgiveness, the healing of our bodies, the deliverance from all of these things. It's already done. If Jesus has already died for you, if by His stripes you were healed, 1 Peter 2, 24, if it's already done, how could you doubt that He would do what He's already done? It takes all the struggle out of it. 
Instead of me coming to a meeting like this saying, Oh God, I'm just believing you're going to heal me. I know you're going to heal somebody. I'm believing that you are going to heal me. I'm believing you to heal me. Did you know what? There's an element of doubt in that. There's uncertainty. There's anxious. There could be frustration if you don't see the physical manifestation. But when you come to a meeting and you say, Father, I thank you that I've already been healed. It's already done. I know it's mine and praise God I'm receiving. There's a total different attitude. A person is, is just trusting and relying upon what God has already done and a person who is trying to get God to do something. You know the audacity, really, of us to think that we can make God do things. It just it defies logic. And yet this is basically where religion is. Religion is trying to force God. And so we don't believe He'll do it for one or two or ten people, but what we do is get a hundred million. If we could get so many people praying at the exact same moment, boy, that'll put pressure on God. That'll make Him move. It's just silly. That's not what these scriptures are teaching. We need to understand that God by grace has already done everything. And if He's done it, well then it's just a matter of resting in what He's already done. It's just a matter of reaching out and when you find out that by the stripes of Jesus you're already healed, then it's easy to say, well, Father, if I'm already healed, that means that in the spirit realm I've already got this power on the inside. I mean, instead of struggling, I'm just going to rest in it. I, it's a done deal. Amen. I told a couple of people this day, today that, you know what, you need to quit trying to get healed and start trusting that you've already been healed. There's a huge difference between the two. When Jamie and I first got into the ministry, you know, we were so poor that we couldn't pay attention. I mean, we were struggling financially, and it was my own fault. I won't go into that. But nonetheless, Jamie and I would go weeks without eating. And I was pastoring my first church, and the Bible that I was using was a Bible that I took through Vietnam with me. And the thing was mildewed, and uh, I had taped nearly every page in that Bible together, and I'd written in it, and it was just a mess. Entire books of the Bible, not just chapters, but books of the Bible were gone. So when I would open my Bible, I'd say, let's turn over to it. And it wasn't there. And I'd just have to quote it. That's one reason I can quote so many scriptures. I had to fake it. Because I didn't even have a whole Bible. And you know what? I finally decided that I'm going to have to believe God and start seeing some of these things work somewhere. And I just drew a line in the sand and said, this is it. I believe God for a new Bible. And... Some of you will have a hard time relating to this, but honestly, it took me six months to believe for an extra $20 so that I could uh, get a Bible. And I know some of you think, well, it's just your priorities. You were using it for other things. But Jamie and I, when we were first married, our entire first 12 months of marriage, our income was $1,253. And we had $100 a month rent plus utilities. I don't know how that works. Our second year, our income jumped up to $2,500 for 12, year, 12 months. So we had a total of $3,700, $3,800 in 24 months the first. And we were struggling. And I mean, when it took me uh, six months to believe for 20 extra dollars, that was putting a priority on this. And during that period of time, man, I struggled. Satan was telling me, you're never going to get it. It'll never work. 
And this just became something that, you know, the ministry was going to stand or fall based on whether or not I could believe God for this 20 extra dollars to go get a Bible. And uh, after six months, I finally had enough money. I went and got a Bible. I had my name engraved on it. I walked out of that bookstore with that Bible under my arm. And you know, the most amazing thing happened was when I walked out of that bookstore, instantly I quit doubting that I'd get it once I had it. Prior to that time, I bet you that there wasn't 10 minutes during my waking hours that I didn't have some fear or anxiousness or thought of unbelief about it's not going to work. You can't get it. Some man of God you are, you can't even believe for a Bible. I had to deal with thoughts constantly. But as soon as I had it, I quit doubting that I'd get it. And most of you are thinking, well, of course. Why would you doubt that you're going to get it if you've already got it? That's my point. You know why you're sitting there saying, in the name of Jesus, I'm healed. And then your next thought is, you're going to die. I don't know if you're ever going to get better. And then you start thinking about, what's my funeral going to be like? And then you catch yourself and you say, no, in the name... You know why you're going through this and you're dealing with all of this? Because you are using your faith thinking God is going to respond to your faith and heal you. But if you could understand that God healed you before you ever got sick, before you were ever born, before you ever had a problem, God has already healed you. And according to Ephesians chapter 1, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead already indwells you. You have raising from the dead power at your disposal. And He said that He gave you the authority to use that that you can speak to this mountain and you can command it. Once you understand that God's already done it, how can you doubt that God will do what He's already done? If you're struggling to say, well, I, I'm, I'm trying to believe, but I just don't know if I'll ever get healed. It's because you don't understand that faith just appropriates what God has already provided. You are still thinking that God is going to respond to you and when you do everything right and hold your mouth just right and confess so many times, then God is going to release His power. You still think that God is responding to your faith. Your faith is a response to God's grace. And if you ever get those things mixed up, then you get frustrated and I tell you, there have been a, I came out of the faith movement, so I'm not against the faith movement. There was a lot of great things said in there, but there was people who didn't understand that faith just appropriates what God has already provided, and they got over into making faith a work, something that they did trying to force God to move, and they got frustrated. And there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of faith people today that don't even darken the door of a church. Because they got frustrated. They did everything that they knew. They pushed every button and God didn't come out. And they feel like God failed them. Because they did these things. And God didn't respond the way that they were told that He would. You eliminate all of that problem when you understand that faith only appropriates what God has already Provided. You aren't trying to get God to do anything. It's not about God giving. It's all about you learning how to receive. And once you understand that, it makes the Christian life so simple. It reduces it down to just 
something to where all you got to do. This is the reason you study the Word. Not in order to earn a star that you can turn in for an answer to prayer. It's not going to earn you any favor with God. You're studying the Word so that you can learn what He's already done, what God has already provided, so that you can learn about your great salvation. And as you learn about it, faith just rises up on the inside and you begin to start believing God. Man, it's infinitely better. This will give you peace in your relationship with God. Amen. And you know what? There will probably be, still be some things that you believe God has provided by grace that you aren't seeing come to pass in your life. But when that happens, instead of you saying, God, what's wrong? How come you healed this other person but you haven't healed me? And instead of you getting bitter and angry at God, yep. I tell you, I, I have people come to me and say, I'm just angry at God because He failed to do this. I don't even relate to that. God's never failed to do anything. If anything failed, it was me that failed to understand and appropriate and receive. And I had wrong attitudes that hindered what God wanted to do. But God is not the one that's ever failed me. If anything, I failed God. But God has never failed me. It'll get rid of that attitude once you understand that God by grace has already done everything. He's provided everything that you will ever need. I don't know if you're getting what I'm saying, but this would just transform your life if you can understand the points that I'm getting across right here. God's already done His part. We aren't trying to get God to do anything. You don't have to badger God. You don't have to plead with God. Let me use a couple of scriptures. I've got a little bit of time here. I, I need to answer this or somebody's going to deal with this on your own and come up with the wrong conclusion. So look over in Luke chapter, I think it's chapter 11. In Luke chapter 11, in the very first part of this chapter, he taught on what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer. And then in verse 5, he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend, and shall go unto him at midnight, and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine in his journey is come unto me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. Now this passage, this parable is often taught to say that this is the way that God is. God is like this friend who's liable to tell you when you come to him and say, Oh God, I need this. He's liable to say, Hey, I'm in bed. My children are in bed. I'm already asleep. Don't bother me. And you just have to, you have to keep petitioning. You have to badger God. You have to stay after Him until God just won't, uh, you know, you, you give Him no rest and you make Him get up and get rid of you. Give you what you want just to get rid of you. Don't look at me in that tone of voice. I bet you every person in here has heard this taught from that perspective that that's the way. We got to just badger God. This is not what this passage of Scripture is teaching. It is not a comparison. It's a contrast. It's the same thing I've done many times. I've been in people's homes before. I remember one guy in particular 
that was struggling. He had just received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He knew that God loved him. He was ready to die and go to heaven. And uh, he just thought God had already been so good to me. He's already saved. He's baptized. He didn't know for sure that God wanted to heal him. And I was struggling to convince this guy that it was God's will for him to be well. And finally, after talking to him for a long time, his wife was kneeling right beside the bed. And I said, do you think that your wife would want you to die and suffer and go through all this pain that you're going through? And he said, oh, no. He says, my wife loves me so much. If there was anything that she could do, she would heal me. And I said, and you've probably had fights with your wife and you've had arguments. And he said, yeah, but you know what? There's nothing I've done that would ever cause her to want me to die and go through this suffering and pain. And I said, you know what? You think that your wife, who is a physical human being and has been corrupted, you think your wife loves you more than God does. And boy, it just stopped his argument all of a sudden. If you understood that God is love, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, well, then I guarantee you God loves you infinitely more than any physical person does. The point that he's trying to get across is, how many of you have a friend? Now, I'm not talking about an acquaintance, somebody you know, but somebody that you could call a friend. How many of you, if you had a need, and just because it was midnight, if you called them up on the phone and said, hey, I've got a need, my car broke down or something, could you help me? How many of you have friends that would say, oh, forget it. I'm in bed. My kids are in bed. Who cares about you? Go call somebody else. How many of you have friends like that? Here's one person. Let me just suggest to you that that is not a friend. They aren't friends. You know what? Here's the point that he's making. How many of you know people who would treat you that rudely that you would consider a friend? Nobody. No friend would treat you that way. Then he's saying, then how do you expect God to be like that to where you just have to badger him? This verse is actually teaching the opposite of the way that it's traditionally interpreted. It's saying if you expect that much mercy and kindness from a physical human being, then how much more should you expect God to answer your prayer without having to badger Him? It's making a contrast. And the context will prove that. Because look at the very next verse. In verse 9, he says, And I say unto you. In other words, this is a way that even in this parable, you can't imagine a friend acting this way. But here's what I say unto you. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth. And he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he for a stone give him a, um, a fish? I mean, let's see. I read that wrong. If, he, if any of you shall ask bread, I tell you what, this light up here is pitiful. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being uh, evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? See, in context, what he's trying to do, he says, look, how many of you would treat your children so badly that if you asked for a piece of bread, you'd give him a stone so that he could eat and break his teeth? If he asked for a fish, you'd give him a serpent. If he asked for an egg, you'd give him a scorpion. How many of you would treat your children that way? Hopefully nobody. 
If you would, we'll turn you over to social services. They've got agencies that will prosecute you. That's wrong. Well, then if we who are corrupted and sinful and do things out of our own pleasure and operate incorrectly, if we are better than this, how do we come off with this kind of knowledge that Almighty God is less compassionate than we are and that we have to badger Him and He won't respond to one person who asks for the power of God to be manifest. We have to get a hundred million people together to force God and to manipulate Him and to badger Him into sending revival. I tell you, there's some serious, serious wrong attitudes in the body of Christ. And I believe that it can all fit into this teaching that I'm doing about grace and faith. You need to understand that God, by grace, has anticipated the needs of the entire human race as well as every one of us individually. He's meant every need that you will ever have. Before you ever had the problem, God had already created the answer. God made the supply before you ever had the need. God has already provided everything. There's nothing that's going to ever come into your life that's going to catch God by surprise and that you have to go to Him and beg Him for help. And, oh God, I don't know if you can pull this off. God has already dealt with everything. Everything's already provided, but that doesn't mean that you're going to experience that provision unless you have an appropriate response of faith unless you learn to trust in what He's done. And instead of panicking and getting into fear, you just trust. You rest and say, Father, I don't care what the doctor says. I know what you've said. And I trust you. I believe that you've already provided this. And see, once you get this attitude, once you begin to start living it, it creates in you so much of a sense of peace that nothing's ever going to happen to you that God hadn't anticipated. The need is already there before. I mean, the supply was there before the need is. And it just gives you a confidence that you don't have to be afraid of what the devil throws at you. It doesn't matter because God's already provided it. That's faith. And it gives you a consistency. If you're one of these, it's up and down and you're up as long as everything's wonderful. And then when tragedy hits, you go into the valley and you get desperate and you go to seeking God and begging and pleading. And then God comes through and you're back up here then you're a super carnal person. You aren't resting in God. You are just going by what you observe in the physical, natural realm. You don't understand that God by grace has already provided everything. When you understand this, it gives you a consistency. It allows you just to be the same at all times because God is the same at all times. Even though circumstances fluctuate, even though my finances fluctuate, even though my health and my joy and other things may fluctuate, God's... Supply is the same. And I'm able to just be consistent. I'm not afraid of any bad tidings because I know that God's already met the needs. I am not having to do something to make God respond. Man, that's good news. And this is an attitude that I think very few Christians have because very few Christians have understood that you're saved by grace through faith. They either emphasize, well, it's just up to God. We're waiting on God. Whatever God's will will be. And they're just over there passive, letting the devil beat them up, not taking their authority, not using anything because they've misunderstood the sovereignty of God. 
Or there's people on the other side who are just trying to force God and make God do this and they're fasting, twisting God's arm, trying to badger God, force God into doing all of these things. They, in a sense, have become God themselves and are taking responsibility for making everything happen. That's frustrating to the max. You know, there's a lot of people that have got off into this when it concerns angels. There are scriptures that talk about angels and how they work for us. And so there's a teaching about you have to tell your angels what to do and tell them to go do this and tell them to protect you when you get on that plane and station an angel on every corner of your car to protect you and you do this and this and this. You know, the scripture says that the angels behold the face of God. They aren't listening to you. Now, it is true. There is a truth that if you go to confessing, oh, I know that if anybody has a wreck, it's going to be me. Well, Satan will take advantage of those words and you will have what you say and you're shooting yourself in the foot. And so, yes, you do need to speak that I'm blessed and I'm protected and that angels protect me. Those things are okay. But the angels are beholding the face of the Lord. You aren't sharp enough to tell your angels what to do. There's so many things that go on in our life that we don't even know what's happening. We're, we're going to find out when we get to heaven that there were so many times the devil tried to kill you and you didn't even know about it. But because you were walking in joy and believing and trusting God, God commanded the angels and God protected you. But there is a truth that angels are real. There's angels in this room. There's angels that protect us. There's things that happen. And so there's a truth But some people being ignorant of the fact that God is the one who directs them and takes care of you, they've gotten over here and they have to assign their angels. Their angels can't do anything without them telling them what to do. And I guarantee you, you just make a very poor God. It would be much better to just trust God and then let God be the one that directs them. God can see what you can't see and God can take care of things much, much better than what you ever could. Amen? Amen. I tell you, what I've done so far is just lay a foundation for what I'm really wanting to say the rest of this week. This has just got you to a place where if you can understand and embrace what we've talked about, we are fixing to get into some wonderful things that are going to make a difference in your life. But this is basic Christianity. This is Christianity 101. This is as foundational as you can get. If you think God is the one over here controlling everything and causing the tragedies and the heartbreaks, then there's no way that you're ever going to resist them lest you find yourself resisting God. If you're over here thinking that you, God is responding to you and you are the one that's making God move by your great faith, I guarantee you, you can't bear that kind of responsibility. You aren't capable of doing that. There is a totally different attitude and that's to find out that God loves you more than you love yourself. God loves your family more than you love yourself. God wants you to succeed more than you want yourself to succeed. God by grace has provided everything that is necessary for you to accomplish what He wants you to do. It's already been done and the rest of it is just us resting and trusting that God, you've already provided it. Now that sounds easy, but the hardest thing you'll ever do is rest. Over in Hebrews chapter 4, I'm going to minister on that sometime during this week. Hebrews chapter 4 says you have to labor to enter into the rest. That sounds contradictory, but that's exactly what the truth is. 
It's the hardest thing you'll ever do to get to where you trust that it's already been done instead of it needs to be done. And it's going to be hard for you to control your tongue, to control your actions, to control your anxiety and stuff like this. And it's going to take some effort. You're going to have to get into the Word of God. You're going to have to start dominating yourself with this knowledge instead of what the world has to say. It's going to take some effort. Like the Apostle Paul said, I labored more abundantly than they all because of the grace that was given unto me. God by grace has provided everything, but there's effort on your part to trust and rest in the fact that God's already done it. Amen? Amen. That's good news. You know, if there's anyone here today who has not made Jesus your personal Lord, this is how you begin this process. You, first of all, must be born again. It's not enough to believe that God exists. You have to make Him your personal Lord. You have to personally submit yourself unto Him. And when you do that, God changes you on the inside and you become a new person. And then once you get born again, Jesus told His disciples who were already born again, He said, don't go anywhere, don't preach, don't do anything until you receive power from on high. Talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And you can read it in Acts chapter 2. When the Holy Spirit came upon them, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke with tongues. You know, I've had a number of questions today. People come up and after the last night's invitation, they ask questions about, you know, those were known tongues. This isn't the praying in tongues that you hear people do. There's a lot of things about tongues that have been confused. There are people who don't believe that this is a valid gift for today and things like that. I haven't really got time to teach on this, but it's my personal testimony that you need the power of the Holy Spirit, which includes speaking in tongues, to be able to see the real power of God manifest in your life. I was born again when I was eight years old, but when I was 18 is when I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and God just transformed my life through that. I can guarantee you, you would not have seen me in front of a group of people talking if it hadn't been for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I was an introvert and couldn't look at a person in the face and talk to them. The baptism of the Holy Spirit changed my life as far as outward things go, it changed my life more than my born-again experience. Now, I'm not saying that it's more important, but the born-again was what took place on the inside. As far as what I experienced on the outside, I was changed more outwardly when the Holy Spirit came upon me and this life that had been given me through Jesus began to be manifest when the Holy Spirit came upon me. Jesus, of course, was God manifest in the flesh, but Jesus didn't do any miracles or minister to anyone until He was anointed with the Holy Spirit. If Jesus needed to be anointed with the Holy Spirit to be effective, it's the height of arrogance on any of our part to think that we can live the Christian life without the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Boy, I tell you, you need this baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. So if there's anyone here today who has not made Jesus your personal Lord and been born again and or you have not been baptized in the Holy Spirit and if you don't speak in tongues, you must receive those two things before you can go very far in the Lord. Those are essentials for maturity. Is there anybody here that would raise your hand and say, I need one or both of those and I'd like you to pray with me so that I could receive. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand. 